How are you today? Some of us uh, are still sleepy. I know. Good morning. Good morning to you people in front. <laughs> welcome to Point of Grace. My name is Pastor Norbert. If this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you, especially those who are worshiping with us online. Um, this is our second installment to our new series, God's Plan, His Kingdom, and Its Boundaries. Last week, we talked about God's plan for the world. Today, I want to talk to you about the boundaries of the kingdom. Where's the kingdom, and where's the boundaries of the kingdom? A little segue. My wife and I are Korean fans, and by Korea, we mean South Korea, not North Korea. Uh, my wife loves to watch TV series. I like to eat the food. And that's why probably some days, our daughter looks Korean. Maybe. <laughs> we haven't been to Korea, but a couple of weeks ago, we tried this small family-owned restaurant. Uh, I'd say five out of five for authenticity. It's good, very good. Uh, it's in the uh, Davie area, so we went there to this restaurant. Um, the dad is the chef, the mom and the daughter worked the floor, and we were not disappointed, so we ordered the food that we liked, and when the food came up, we were so happy. At the end of it, our tummy is happy, but at the end of it, when we asked for the bill, we were both shocked, because the bill <laughs> is so pricey. Um, it, it's kind of uh, a different feeling when you know, you're out in the restaurant, you're expecting a lot, and you're satisfied, but when the bill comes out, uh, you're also surprised. Have you been in that kind of situation? Who is as cheap as me? <laughs> so the bill came out, and it's, it's a bill for four people. When it came out, the check is like a breakup letter uh, from your boyfriend saying, it's over. <laughs> it's very depressing. See, the first chapter, the first 11 chapters of Joshua is full of action, full of drama, full of adventure, full of thriller. It's just like watching James Bond or The Game of Thrones or The Lord of the Rings. It's, it's full of those things. But come chapter 12, it's just a list of things, of places, names of kings, and nothing more. No drama, no action, nothing. It's like the bill at the end of your dinner. There's nothing in there. So when I was trying to, to study on this, chapter 12 of Joshua, I was like asking, what is God saying through this chapter? What am I about to study from this chapter? What is God telling me about himself in this chapter? Because the first 11 chapters of Joshua talks about Joshua crossing the Jordan River, and then they had their first celebration, the Passover, and then they circled around the city of Jericho for seven days, and the walls suddenly came down, and then they attacked the city of Ai, and they, and they killed a lot of people, and then suddenly, the last uh, campaign is that Joshua defeated all the five kings in the southern kingdom when he stopped the sun and the moon from moving. I mean, that, that's all drama and action and thriller and adventure. And suddenly, chapter 12 is just names of kings and places and geography and territory. That's it. What could God be saying? So during this week, I was thinking about that. What could God be saying about chapter 12? Apostle Paul said in Timothy, he said, all scripture is God's breath. It is profitable for teaching, correcting, training, and righteousness. 
So come to think of it, if chapter 12 is all of scripture, is part of the all scripture, then God must be saying something about training in righteousness. Uh, there's one, one time also when Jesus resurrected from the dead, the next day he was walking along, the two disciples going to the road to Emmaus. And then at the end of the road, they were having dinner, and Jesus explained to them what this is all about. Um, it says in, uh, let me say that, let me go back there. Uh, in Luke 24, uh, Luke 24, he said, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them according to the scriptures, all it's a, that all about Jesus. Uh, say that again. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that means even this passage, even this obscure passage, God must be telling something about Jesus. This must talk or point something to Jesus. Let me show you this one passage from verse 7 to verse 24, what I mean by just the list of kings and territories and names. Do we have it? There you go. We will not memorize or read all these because these are but names of places and territories and people groups and names of kings that you don't have to memorize. Have you ever had uh, wake up one day and you say, I wanna, I wanna read my Bible, I wanna pray, I wanna know what God wants to tell me today. And then you flip to Joshua chapter 12 and you go, and these are the kings of the land and Joshua and the people of Israel. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. This is not the passage that you want to memorize and commit to memory, commit to your heart, that when you are troubled, when you're stressed, when you have a problem, you would go, and these are the kings of the land. And no, it doesn't work that way. No, we will not memorize. But you see, at the very end of it, it says uh, all the names of the, the places and the people group and the territories and it ends with 31 kings. I was this, uh, during this week, I was trying to wrestle with the idea how we can get something from here. So it was Jesus who said to his two disciples in the road to Emmaus, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Joshua is with the prophets, that he interpreted to them the scriptures concerning himself. That means in this passage, we can see Jesus, or at least this points to Jesus. Now, there, there are two headings here. Verse 1 and verse 7. Verse 1 and verse 7, I'm going to read it side by side so we can have a better understanding of this. Verse 1, it says, Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward sunrise. That's the key word, the key phrase. Beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And verse 7, it says, And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of Jordan. So this is your west. On the west side of Jordan. The operative phrase here is the Jordan River. So the land of Israel, the promised land, is divided into two, the east and the west. And the, in the middle of it is the Jordan River. And I promise you, the Jordan River has a spiritual significance in the life of Israel and also in the life of Christians, us. But like I said, these are just but the list of kings and territories and names of kings and groups of people that Joshua and the Israelites defeated at the very end of the campaign. Now, at the very bottom of it, chapter 24, in verse 24, it says, the king of Tirzah, because he narrates all the kings that Joshua defeated, and at the very end, he said, 
the king of Tirza, one in all, 31 kings. Now, the Bible doesn't waste any word or words. Everything that's in the Bible is very important and significant. That's why it's in there. All right, so that means this is significant. The king of Tirza, one in all, 31 kings. This last phrase, 31 kings, is the key to understand the whole passage. Now, why is that? Let me show you a different passage that sheds light this one. Now, it's like treasure hunting. Do you remember uh, last Sunday we talked about Noah? Yes? In July, by the way, we will see the Noah's Ark. So, we will open, by the way, let, let me do a little segue. We'll open the registration today. If you are up for the challenge and if you want to press in, we will open the registration today. Look for Ate Aida, Edith, and... Uh, yeah, at the edit and at the LC, and they will take your names and your payments <laughs> so that we can lock in this uh, visit to the Noah's Ark. So, again, there was this guy by the name of Noah. There came a time in the world that God said, the earth has, has been filled with wickedness and evil. So he decided to destroy the whole earth. But he said, I found only one person by the name of Noah who is righteous. So I will save the world through this one man and through his family. So he commissioned Josh, Noah, rather, sorry, Noah to build the ark. It took him 100 years to build the ark because there were only four of them, Noah and his three sons. And so it took them 100 years to build the ark. At the end of it, they went to the ark, there was flood, everything, all living things died except for those people inside the ark. That is Noah, Mrs. Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and the Mrs. All eight people in there in the boat. When the flood subsided, Noah went out of the ark, and the first thing that he did is to plant a vineyard. Now, I understand that this is a little bit of PG-13, so I must warn all the parents here. PG-13. Okay, so Noah planted a vineyard, and when he planted a vineyard, vineyard, grapes, wine. Are you following me? So, so Noah got drunk, and he passed out, and he was naked. This is in the Bible. That's why it's PG-13. He's drunk, he passed out, and he was naked. His, his son, Ham, peeked in his tent, and he saw his father naked, and did something that the Bible, if you, if you read between the lines, you know that there's something wrong with what he did. What he also did is to tell his two other brothers that his father was naked. His two other brothers took a blanket walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness to shame. When Noah woke, he realized what his son Ham did to him. And so he cursed Canaan. Who's Canaan? Canaan is the son of Ham. Instead of cursing Ham, he cannot do that because God already blessed Ham, Shem, and Japheth. He cursed Canaan and prophetically what he did was and prophetically what he did was to curse all the descendants of Canaan. All right, are you following me? Does that mean? Okay, how do I do that? Maybe we can... So where was I? So Noah, uh, Noah prophetically cursed Canaan and all the, of his descendants. Now, what's interesting here, and what I find fascinating here, is that 
after that curse came chapter 10 of Genesis. And it lists down all the descendants of Ham. And at the very bottom of it, if you count all the descendants from Ham, it's total to 31. I'm going to show you this one. So the, the, the chapter 10, verses 6 to 20. Now again, these are all the names of the sons of Ham, beginning from the sons of Ham, and all the descendants up to their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. This is something also that you don't have to memorize. But look here, pay attention to verses 15 and the following. It says, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. These are the very people that was mentioned in Joshua chapter 12 that the Lord commissioned Joshua and Israel to drive out from the land. Why is, why is God telling Joshua to drive these people out? Because they are cursed. And if they are cursed, they're not supposed to be in the land. Are you following me? It's, it's as simple as that. They're not just being wicked. They're not just wicked and, and sinful. It's because they are cursed. And they're not supposed to be in the land. The land is God's new dwelling place. This is the place of God. This is very interesting for me. What this tells me is that God is never taken by surprise. And by implication, this means a lot. That means God is never taken by surprise. See, my daughter loves surprises. She, in fact, she always tells me every day she wants a surprise. Papa, I want a surprise. And by surprise, she means every day, every morning, when she wakes up, she wants a gift, a surprise. And every day she would say, Papa, surprise. And when she says surprise, she means a new dress or a toy. It sounds counterintuitive because it's not a surprise anymore if you're expecting it every day. Correct? It's a surprise anymore if you know what's inside the gift. See, it's not a surprise. But in contrast, God is never surprised by what will happen next. Because He already knows what happened before, and He already knows what will happen next. In theology, we call Him eternal. God is eternal. He's infinite. He doesn't just live in the past, in the present, in the future. He is eternal. See, by way of definition, we are, we are people who believe in accidents. Now, which leads me to think, that accidents don't apply to God. That means an accident is our human way to define the circumstances that take us by surprise. To us humans, they are surprised, but to God, they're not surprised. What it means is that my problems, none of my failures, none of my achievements, none of my circumstances will ever take God by surprise. Why? Because God is infinite and eternal. See, God is never taken by surprise. That means from the time that he created the world, he knew what's going to happen, including that little incident inside the tent of Noah when Ham peeked in his tent, all the way to the cursing of Ham and the Canaanites, and all the way to the invasion of Joshua and Israel to the Promised Land. God is never taken by surprise, which means that my daily decisions, my daily struggles, my daily stresses may come as a surprise to me, but not to God. God is never taken by surprise. I know this is about the boundaries of the kingdom, because it is. It's about the places and territories of kings who own this land. And it clearly defines the boundaries 
of the kingdom of Israel. And the dividing line of this kingdom is the Jordan River. It's like, you know, when I bought the new house, um, the owner left, cleared the house. I went there, maybe put in some furniture, arranged the interior. But nevertheless, it's the same old house. I'm just the new owner. The coming of the Israelites in the promised land is like having a new owner of the land. They're the new owner, the Israelites. In fact, there was, it was their inheritance. Now, fast forward. There was a time in the history of Israel after Joshua died. There came new leaders and new prophets. And Israel began to get tired of following an invisible king because there was no king in Israel. Only God is governing Israel. And they got tired of it, so they went to the streets and demanded Prophet Samuel for a human king. This is what they said. First Samuel chapter 8, 4 and 5. Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The operative phrase here is like all the nations. What Israel wants is Israel wants to blend in like all the nations. Israel wants to be governed like all the nations. But aren't Israel supposed to be different? Because they were called to be holy, a people of God, a kingdom of priests and king. They're supposed to stand out like how Christians are supposed to stand out. Jesus said, we are the salt and the light of the earth. You don't put the light under the table. You put the light somewhere up there so that all people can see. So it can shed light to everything. We're supposed to stand out. We're not supposed to cave in to what our community wants. Our neighbors are supposed to see that there's something distinctly interesting about our lives and our lifestyle. Our neighbors are supposed to see that their neighbors, Edwin and Ida and Precious, are fun in a different kind of way. Not in the Jerry Springer kind of fun way. See, we Christians are supposed to be fun differently, but with a sense of wholeness and, and holiness. We're supposed to stand out like the nation of Israel. So that the, the whole idea of bringing Israel to the promised land is that they may be governed by God and His laws, by God and not by human kings. See, the calling of God to Israel has something to do with their life in the land of promise where they're supposed to be holy as God is holy so that God can bless all the nations of the world with that kind of holiness. And so when the people asked for a human king, this is what God said to Prophet Samuel. Chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Now, pause. Now, you remember when the then-president, Arab Strada, uh, won the presidency in the Philippines? He said, Vox Populi, Vox Deo. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Not this, not in this instance. It doesn't always work. God is saying to Prophet Samuel that they have rejected God. Obey the voice of the people, but that is not my voice. He said, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. God was their king, and they have rejected the only king that they have. It's not Samuel that they rejected. It is Yahweh that they rejected. They rejected the God who released them from bondage from Egypt. They rejected the God who parted the Red Sea so they can cross. 
They rejected the God who provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years. They rejected the God who made them possible to enter the promised land and defeat all the kings in there. They've rejected the God whom they worship, who dwelt in the tabernacles with them. They rejected Yahweh. Do you believe that? These people who had the closest encounter with God rejected Him by asking for a human king. It's, it's unreal. So what God did was to give them a king, a king who is confused and reluctant. His name is Saul. He doesn't have the heart of God just like David. And then God sent many other prophets who spoke one thing. All the prophets in the Old Testament would say that the time will come when God will return as king and he will establish his throne again. All the prophets would say that. And that's why from the very beginning that you find in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness in the Jordan River preaching repent and be baptists and be baptized <laughs> are you still there repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand that's the preaching of john the baptist repent for the kingdom of heaven is what he's actually speaking of what he was preaching of is that god is returning as king very very soon so we have to repent from that sin when you have rejected God as your king. That's what he's preaching about. And very interestingly, Jesus came to the scene. Jesus stepped in and then he said, very interestingly, and then he said in chapter 1, verse 29 of John, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What did he mean by this one? By saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he was calling the attention of the people about this figure, about this picture of the Lamb. The Lamb, of, the lamb was the animal that they killed during the Passover when they left Egypt. So God commanded Moses to have all the Israelite families to kill a lamb per family and to paint, using the blood of the Lamb, their doors and their windows so that when the angel of death passes by, he will not... Uh, get the firstborns inside the house. That's the idea of the Passover. And so this lamb was also the one that they ate during that night when the lamb, the angel of death, passes over. The very next day, that midnight, they uh, went out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea. So what John in mind, when he was saying, behold the lamb of God, he was saying, Jesus is the Passover lamb. There will be another Passover there will be another exodus. God is redeeming us from slavery. Now, before they were slaves of Egypt, now they were slaves of Rome because they were under the Roman power. What John the Baptist is saying is Jesus, the Lamb of God, is that we have another exodus at hand. There's a thing that's going on here. At the very bottom of this, he said, verse 34, John said, and I have seen and have borne witness that this son, that this is the son of God. He did not only say that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he said that Jesus is the son of God. Son of God is another term for king because David was said the son of God, he was king. So Jesus is not just the Lamb of God, he was king. So that means what he's practically saying is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand 
and Jesus the Son of God, what he means is that God has finally returned as king in the person of Jesus the Messiah. He is the returning God king in the person of Jesus Christ. But you see, G John was expecting a revolutionary Jesus. He was expecting like a, like a Saul king, someone who would wield the sword and ride the horse toward the battlefield and, and challenge the Roman Empire. That's what he was expecting. But he was so discouraged because at the end of his life, he was imprisoned, and in prison, he doubted Jesus because Jesus was not making a move. In fact, what Jesus did, instead of recruiting soldiers and patriots, he created an NGO. He, he recruited misfits. He, he recruited tax collectors and fishermen and, and rebels. And he created an NGO, and he went around all the country healing the sick, uh, healing the lepers, driving out demons, feeding the, the, the people, and going after the poor. See, this is not the revolution that, that John the Baptist was expecting. He was expecting Jesus to raise an army to fight the Roman Empire. Even the communist Black Lives Matter movement people will not join in. This is a lost cause for them. And John understood. But then Jesus said, this is not about the sword. This is about something else. This is a new exodus. My dentist is a Jew. <clears throat> so one time, I went for a prophylaxis. We had a short conversation about Jesus. And before I tried to explain my belief about Jesus, he already had a spiel about Jesus. He said that we Jews don't believe in Jesus because we understand that the qualification, number one qualification for a Messiah is that the Messiah, when he comes, will establish the kingdom of Israel. And when Jesus came, he did not do that. In fact, he was captured, condemned, and crucified. And therefore, Jesus to them was not a Messiah. Before I could even begin to rebut, make a rebuttal of what he said, he injected me with anesthesia. So I believe in Jesus. That was it. That was the last conversation with my dentist. Now I'm looking for another dentist. See, the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus failed their expectation of a Messiah. Very interestingly, Pilate, think about it. At the end of the gospel, Jesus was arrested for blasphemy. He was taken to Pilate. Pilate was the legal representative of Rome. Pilate's supposed to investigate if Jesus really is to be executed. I mean, to be executed by crucifixion is a capital offense. You must have uh, committed sedition. And he was trying to understand if Jesus really committed sedition. So Pilate in his execution investigated in John chapter 18, verse 33, he asked Jesus a very particular question. He said, are you the king of the Jews? Because when he was brought to Pilate, the people who brought him to Pilate said, he's claiming, this guy, Jesus, is claiming to be king of the Jews. And for Pilate, in his mind, the only issue here is that if Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews and challenging the authority of Caesar. That's his only concern. He wants to know if Jesus is challenging Caesar. Because at that time, the Herods are the kings. The Herods are the, the kings that were positioned by Caesar himself. And so it's this Jesus challenging Caesar. So he asked, are you the king of the Jews? But what fascinates me is the response of Jesus to Pilate. Instead of saying... 
you know, Jesus had a very interesting response. But Jesus could have said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus could have said, hell yeah, I'm the king of the Jews. Or Jesus could have said, well, I'm not just king of the Jews. I'm also the king of the Roman Empire and the whole world. But he did not say that. Or Jesus could have said, I walked on water. I multiplied bread. I healed the sick. I'm God Almighty. Release me right now, Pilate. He did not say that. What Jesus said in chapter 18, verse 36 is this. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, and I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's very interesting how Jesus responded. What is this response about his kingdom? We're talking about the boundaries of the kingdom. Now, notice here that Jesus did not deny that he was king. He is king, definitely. Like John said, he's king. He's the son of God. In fact, he gave the truth about the kingdom, and he explained what this kingdom is all about. His response was that God created a kingdom, and he's king of that kingdom. He's not the, just the kingdom of this world, but he's the king of the kingdom that God created from the very beginning. You remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means the whole creation was created by God. Jesus is trying to tell Pilate that he's king over the kingdom that God created from the very beginning, the heavens and the earth. Not just Palestine, not just the Roman Empire, but the whole world. Jesus is king of the whole world. See, his kingdom, his kingdom is the one that has been handed over to Adam and Eve. You remember in Genesis chapter 2? God said to Adam and Eve, have dominion over all the living things, over the whole earth. Supposedly, Adam and Eve were king and, king and queen. They're supposed to dominate the world. This is what Jesus is telling Pilate, I am the king over this creation, over this world. What's interesting is that the Jews who represented Adam, the line of Shem, the bare people who's supposed to know about the Messiah, rejected the return of the king. John chapter 19, verses 14 and 16, it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now pause for a minute. So Jesus was already arrested. He was investigated by Pilate. And Pilate made a mockery out of Jesus. So he flogged Jesus. He gave him 39 lashes. He crowned him with thorn, with crown of thorns. He uh, put, him, put in him the purple robe. And he brought him outside for the people to see. And he said, behold your king. Because he was trying to make a mockery of the people. He's saying, see your king, puny king, not like Caesar. And he's also trying to mock Jesus in that way. See your king, but look at you. You're bound. You're bleeding. So he said, behold your king. And they cried out. The people said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered. Now, there's only one chief priest supposedly in the Old Testament. But it says the chief priests. This is not an accident. Because at the time of Jesus, there were two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas, the older one, and Caiaphas, the son-in-law, both bought their position from Rome. They were placed there because they bought their position. 
They were not supposed to be high priests. So the high priests answered, we have no other king but Caesar. This, you see, is another rejection of God being king over Israel. When Jesus was saying to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, what he's trying to say is that I am king over the kingdom that God created from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. I am king over that kingdom. This is the kingdom that the serpent tried to steal away from Adam and Eve. You shall be gods if you eat this food. So you don't need God anyway. This is the land that the devil said to Jesus in his temptation over in the wilderness. If you bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. See, this is the kingdom that Jesus is trying to claim for being king of. The chief priest said, we have no other king but Caesar. What they're trying to do is they're trying to deny the kingship of Jesus. They're trying to deny the return of the king. Because they would rather be subjects of the Roman Empire than subject of the Jew who claims to be king, who claims to be king because Angel Gabriel announced to Mary that he was to be, supposed to be the king of the Jews. They would rather be subject to a human Gentile king, Caesar, than be subject to the kingship of Jesus who walked on water, who did wonders, who fed the, the Israelites, who did many things, and finally he would sacrifice himself for the people of Israel. And I, I wonder that we as people today in the modern world would rather also reject God as king because we love our own freedom. Have you ever heard of the slogan, my body, my choice? Yes? You've probably heard that once in a while. It's always on television, my body, my choice. Uh, mostly women would, would cry this, my body, my choice, because now it's in the public arena. It's about Roe versus Wade. It's about abortion. It's about my right to my body, my body, my choice. You see, this is not just about abortion and human rights and about feminism. This can be traced all the way to the Enlightenment period. And there's this philosophy in the Enlightenment period. We call it humanism. Humanism places human, humankind in the center of the universe outside of God. See, before the Enlightenment, God was the center of the universe. But when humanism came, they say, no, 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 no. Man now is the center of the universe, not God anymore. And so even in modern times, we try to kick out God in the public sphere. It's very interesting because our dollar says in God we trust. And yet in our public schools, we ban our prayers to God. When you go to a civil wedding, you don't hear the name of God anymore in your oaths. If you are going to be a witness in the court and you swear, you'd say, I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There's no more, so help me God. God is banned also from the courtroom. See, the modern, in modern time, in our modern period, we have also rejected God. We Christians, whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are declaring in reverse that God is king of our lives. We are declaring in reverse that Jesus also is king. Our Father who is in heaven. This is the guy who sent his son for us. And we are acknowledging that there is God who is king in heaven. His kingdom come, his will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. We are acknowledging that the will of God must reign not just in heaven, but also on earth. And not just on earth, but also that I am subject to this king. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're essentially saying, God is my king, I'm the subject, and I will do everything in my power to obey this king because he's my king. Jesus is my king. So when Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin. They talked about how to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked, how do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I get in? Jesus replied to him, chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of course, not literally, you cannot be born again to see the kingdom of God. But if you understand it properly, come to think of it, what Jesus is saying harks back towards Joshua chapter 12, the division of the land by Jordan River. Now, I want to tell you this because it's very interesting. I want you to pay attention to this. Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. How do you get to be born again? So when the people of Israel is about to enter the promised land, which is the kingdom of God, they have to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan River is their sort of baptism. To cross the Jordan River is to be born again, like baptism, like what we do, like what we go through. See, when you go to the water, you're saying, I'm dead to myself. When you come up from the water, you're saying, I'm alive, I'm born again. This is the picture of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, Israel, you have to be born again. You have to go through Jordan River. You have to be baptized. You have to have a new beginning. There's a Japanese word. It's called kintsugi. Or it's also popular by the term kintsukuroi. I think you can see from up, from up there. Kintsukuroi. It's the art of mending broken pottery with gold. This is very interesting. So they have potteries. They would mend it with gold. Not just, you know, glue it, but glue it with gold. It's their metaphor for embracing flaws and imperfections. It is both laborious and expensive, but its main idea is to repair what is broken so that they can use them again. You see, there's a pattern here that talks also about what Jesus did. You know, Jesus did not only use gold, Jesus used his own precious blood to try to initiate the repair of the world. And this is, you see, not just the repair of the world. See, everything that he did, masterfully creating every detail, recruiting every participant, weaving through all the circumstances, all pointing to one major event, the crucifixion and the tomb. See, in the crucifixion, Jesus tried to kintsugi, to repair. But in the resurrection in the tomb, he was creating a new thing. See, the resurrection means that I will be a new me. The resurrection also points to the new heavens and new earth, Revelation chapter 21. See, the kingdom of God, although it's here, but God is creating something new. Isn't it that Paul that said, that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. See, God is not just repairing 
God is also creating something new. And this is a challenge for us as loyal subjects of the King. God is calling us not just to believe. God is calling us to obey. That's the real calling of Christians. Because when we are called, when we are called, we are not called to make decisions. We are called to become disciples of Jesus. This is just, just the one thing. This is an everyday thing that you say every day, Lord, I will be your loyal subject. I will follow you. All my heart, all my mind, all my feelings, including my body, I will honor you because you are my king. And if this is your feeling, this is your thoughts today, I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you and make a recommitment to honor Jesus as king. Father, we honor you as our king. And we will not reject you like how the Jews rejected the return of the king. But we acknowledge that Jesus is king over our lives. That Jesus is not just king over our lives. And that we are not just his loyal subjects. That we will follow him with everything we've got. With how we treat our wives. With how we raise our children. With how we as a family grow together. With how as we as a church belong together and fellowship together without us we live in the community and how our lifestyle and our entertainment and every strand of our lives will be devoted to you as our king father look at our hearts today allow us to recommit ourselves and tell you jesus is our king in jesus name.